The next case was presented by Dr. Sarah Garrido. Okay, this is a 53-years-old patient who has had mild hypertension. She's very active, very intelligent woman who presented for her routine mammogram the prior year. She had a normal mammogram. This time they saw a 1.3-centimeter density on the right upper quadrant of her breast, and she had a core biopsy that showed DCIS. They couldn't rule out microinvasion. She had a lumpectomy and sentinel node. Lumpectomy showed an 8-millimeter poorly differentiated invasive ductal carcinoma with a background of DCIS, ERPR negative, and HER2 positive by FISH. The lymph node was negative, the sentinel node. Anything else you want to say about this woman? What was her lifestyle? What was her state of mind? She's an RN. She's She's a nurse. nurse. She's very active, has three children, totally asymptomatic, mild hypertension, slightly elevated cholesterol, and that's it. No family history. Kind of person who'd be willing to go through therapy for everything from the beginning. Everything. (laughs) So I'm on 0.8 centimeters, node negative, HER2 positive, ERPR negative tumor. What would you be thinking? I would discuss with her the data of, I think, V31, because that clearly demonstrates that these, especially a lady who is 53 years old, she has a long lifespan left, and she carries a substantial risk. Only thing which I would make sure that the pathologist did the HER2 new on the invasive component and not Absolutely. on the DCIS they, component. Yeah, they don't do it in the DCIS. Because if it was on the invasive component, I think the data which was from the British Columbia group, even this subset of patient, there is a sizable risk of recurrence. If I have to just estimate the risk, my guess would be that at least she would have a risk of recurrence close to 20 plus percent. That's what I thought, 20 to 30. Yeah. That's what Age of it Online says too. Is that right? Yeah. yeah. So Aman, instead of this being 0.8 or 8 millimeters, it's 4 millimeters. I think then it becomes the risk-benefit ratio. The thing is that this issue, we discuss it all the time and we cannot hide the data from the patient. And we cannot sugarcoat or present the data in a balanced way to the patient. Yes, the risk will be somewhat lower, but the risk-benefit ratio then becomes much more closer. But each patient has to be informed that there are therapies which in high-risk patients can substantially modify the natural history of disease. You are in that low risk. But we cannot predict whether you are in that high proportion of patients who will be remaining alive free of disease with local therapy or you are in that subgroup of patients. Because I tell the patient, if it is you are the one who is going to relapse, it is 100% for you. So the thing is that there are patients who will say that I want everything done and I am willing to accept the risks. And there are patients who are willing to say that if... I have a high odds of remaining alive free of disease without going into systemic therapy. I don't want to take the additional risks. It sounds like she's, I'll do anything you think will help prevent recurrence situation. What specific chemotherapy do you think you'd be likely to recommend today as opposed to last month? My recommendation still would be, I think, the NSABP, which we have the most extensive experience and I think the most detailed safety data. Kathy, real quick, what do you think you'd be likely to recommend to this woman? I think I'd recommend that she at least have her septin and probably chemotherapy in her septin. The four millimeter, would you think about just her septin? I would think that a lot of things we think should work, but... (laughs) 
But when we put them through the test Fair of enough. science, they Fair don't enough. work. So yeah. would you be thinking about Herceptin without chemo with 0.4 millimeter? Well, one's tempted to. You know it's an active drug in that setting. I think it remains an unknown question whether having to give it in conjunction with chemotherapy, how important that is. But I'm guessing you'd think about it a lot more if she were 70. Yeah. yeah. Again, which chemotherapy? We would probably use something like dostens acetaxel, acetaxel, CEF maybe. Joe? I agree with everything that's been said, and I would also err on the side of treatment with trastuzumab and chemotherapy, most likely sequential doxorubicin, paclitaxel-based therapy. Given her history of hypertension and her likely longevity, I'm somewhat concerned about the cardiac issues. It would be nice. I think this would be an appropriate situation to discuss a non-anthracycline containing regimen, I think. Which regimen? TCH, as used in BCRGO6. And, you know, the obvious question is, would using TC, texture cyclophosphamide, in combination with Herceptin, would that give you just as good results? And, of course, we don't have any data in the presence of Herceptin. We do have it in the absence of Herceptin. I'm a little bit surprised, actually, given the fact that, you know, this last presentation at San Antonio, the BCRG trial, Dennis Slayman said TCH and the anthracycline arm is essentially the same. Amon, do you buy into that? No, I think if you look at the data which he presented, let's say that patients who are HER2 new positive and TOPO2 overamplified, three years estimated disease-free survival was 89% in the patients who got anthracycline-based therapy with trastuzumab, whereas the other two groups, they were identical, 87% disease-free survival at three years. But there's no, there's no difference statistically, correct? The thing which we have to keep in mind, that if we look at the Oxford overview data, Inclusion of anthracycline-based therapy causes about 2 to 3% absolute improvement in the disease-free survival. If you look at the data of BCRG006, consistently, it depends what point you want to read the curves, consistently about 1 to 2 or 3% differences are in favor of anthracycline with trastuzumab arm. There is not a single subset of patients in which TCH is superior than the ACTH. So the thing is, yes, in patients who have high risk of developing cardiac dysfunction because of addition of anthracycline and trastuzumab, we need to discuss the value of TCH because it is an effective combination. But I think it is not as effective as anthracycline-based therapy combinations. What do you think about the fact that the BCRG and the NSAVP, apparently the next HER2-positive adjuvant trial is going to be TCH plus or minus BEV? I think that is a trial. I am always in support of the trial, but I think we need to look at the data as it is. So could you follow up with the patient? So what I did is, because of your comments, you know, I thought about the same thing. When was she diagnosed? Because there's actually a historical aspect to this case. It's kind of fun. (laughs) When exactly was this going on? She was diagnosed June 2006. So she was diagnosed after the BCRG stuff had been presented. And I was there. The first BCRG. You were there at the San Antonio (laughs) meeting. Well, my thinking was kind of similar. This is a kind of borderline treatment for chemotherapy. She is already past 50. She's somewhat hypertensive, high cholesterol. We like to avoid anthracycline. I actually ordered a TOPO2 co-amplification test, and it came back negative. So I gave her TCH. Six cycles, she did absolutely wonderful, no signs of, you know, alopecia, obviously, but nothing else. And has gone into her septenary three weeks now. And how's she doing? She's doing wonderful. Amon, any comments? Do you think Topo 2 today has a role clinically? 
after he presented the stuff that made it look like the second presentation that it wasn't going to be very useful. I think its role needs to be defined. I think topo two subgroup of patients, the data you look at it, it's all over the board. The studies which have CMF versus anthracycline-based therapies, some of the Canadian studies and European studies, do provide, I think, a fairly strong signal that maybe there is a subset of patients in which anthracycline-based therapy might be superior, and we may be able to prospectively identify that. Question is that right now we don't have any standardized assay. Everybody is using different cutoff, different methodology, and I think my feeling is that at the end of the day when the dust settles, yes, this might be another thing which we may be looking at the tumor and identifying and making more individualized therapy based on these tests. How about right now? Right now, I would not hang my hat on that. So, Kathy, I was in the audience there with Dr. Garrido and Dennis Slayman presented it the first time, and I was like, this looks like it works. You looked at the curves and all. I think all of us were stunned when we saw the change that occurred with more follow-up. Yeah, I think the message is that these analyses of predictive factors are very unstable, potentially, in trials that are powered to look at the difference between the treatments, but not to look at the predictive factors. And we've seen this in our own hands, trying to look at studies when we've got 70% of the specimens and 90% of the specimens and not seeing quite the same results. So I think there need to be a number of studies and there need to be meta-analyses. There was a nice paper presented at San Antonio about her 2 new and anthracycline versus non. I think that's the kind of data we need before we can really move forward to use this in practice. 